Good evening. It's good to be here. Do a short prayer for me once more. It's been a while since I've been up here. Hopefully it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You never really forget how to do it. Tonight we're going to start a new book, Second John. Um, it's remarkable how short this book is. If you actually flip to the Pew Bible, you can kind of see this. It's not even big enough to fit up the whole page. I mean, this is uh, you could probably put this in a postcard, but yet I think as we go through this book, we'll see that it was rightfully added to or put into the canon because it is God's word and it has a message for us that is a real blessing and a treasure for us. Let me ask you this. Uh, what is more important, truth or love? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Would it be truth or love? That's actually kind of a difficult question if you, if you really think about it, right? I, as I play pickleball and I encounter various groups, there's a group of pickleball Mormons out there. I'm not kidding you. There's a group of Mormons, actually, there's like a professional Mormon pickleball player that comes out there and uh, they play. And that's their strategy is to play pickleball and to make friends. And then they actually have built an entire pickleball uh, gymnasium and invite people into the gymnasium to play games and then eventually win them. Why do I bring them up? Because in some sense, one could think of that as love, that they are expressing love, but they have no truth. And so what value is that? In fact, all of their efforts are actually negative. They're bad. In fact, Second John's going to talk about the, the works of darkness and not having any fellowship with them because they uh, produce only but evil. So we see that Love, by itself, is insufficient without truth, but on the flip side, what if you just have truth, but you have no love? What if you just beat people over the head with truth, but then express no love to go along with it? You can think of the Jews. They were like this in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. Jesus said, listen to them, but do not do what they say, because they had the truth, but they had absolutely no love, and they used to put these burdens on the backs of men that they themselves would not even lift a finger to carry. And then Romans chapter 2 says, all day long that my name has been blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So we need truth and we need love, and we're going to see that those two themes played out in Second John, the importance of both truth and love. So I'm going to go ahead and read Second uh, John, the entire little book. And as I do, I want you to perk up your attention to how often the concept of truth and how often the concept of love is mentioned and intertwined and how essential they are. So if you don't have your Bibles open, please open your Bibles to Second John, toward the end of the book of your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one who ha we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming 
of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So let's look at that very first verse. It tells us who wrote the letter. The first verse, very first words, the, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So here the title, the elder, almost certainly refers to John, uh, John the Apostle. John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. The title here probably does not refer to John being an elder. Now, he was an elder, but it probably isn't referring to him as being an elder in and of himself. If there's any question of whether the apostles were also elders, we get confirmation that that is, in fact, the case in 1st Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Here, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he goes on and on to say what he exhorts them to do. He later also describes that they are to shepherd the flock of God, these elders, and there is a chief shepherd, namely Jesus Christ. So based on 1 Peter chapter 5, we know that the apostles were elders. Of course, not all the elders were apostles, but every apostle was an elder. And so since we have John as an apostle, he too was an elder. But he's described as not a elder or part of the elder board, that is a collection of elders that are supposed to oversee the matters of the church, but he's described simply as the elder. Now, the Bible clearly throughout its pages describe that it's be a plurality of elders that is to lead the church. Even when he appointed apostles, it was a plurality of apostles that were to lead the church. Now, just a simple quick note on this is how important that is to have a plurality of elders, how difficult it is for someone to lead the church all by themselves, and they need a group of accountability to shepherd the church of God. And hence, that is the reason why the Bible describes multiple elders, and even we had multiple apostles. But here, once again, we have the singular, we have the elder, not the elders. And what's probably going on here is that this phrase, the elder, really just means the older man someone who is older in, compar- in comparison to the other people within that community. And so what's most likely going on here is that this is John in his older age. He is literally older than just about anyone and everyone else in the congregation. Um, certainly he is the last of the living apostles. All the other apostles have died. And so they just refer to him as the elder. And really, if you think about it, uh, the elder kind of because we refer to elders in in the office, we kind of don't really see it, but it's really the old man. And maybe that feels a little funny to you. How would you feel if somebody described you as the old man? You might be offended. You might think, I'm not old. In fact, people often hide their age and things of that kind of uh, nature. We don't really see that as a positive thing, the old man. Yet he is called, with endearment, with no shame, the old man, the elder And so there's something here that we need to recognize, that there is a disconnect between the way that the Bible 
uh, understands old age and the way that our modern culture sounds old age. The reason why your translations say the old man is because most people would misunderstand it as some kind of derogatory comment, even though that was not the case. In other words, we today view old age as a problem. In fact, there's a multi-billion dollar industry to solve this problem called anti-aging. I don't want you to do this right now in the sermon, but if you Google anti-aging, see how many products show up. There's a whole bunch of products to undo the effects of aging. One thing that we're trying to undo, by and large, is gray hair, right? But consider what the Bible says about gray hair, which is a sign of aging. Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a problem that needs to be fixed with hair products. No, it doesn't. It says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. You know, that's in the Bible. Gray hair is a crown of glory, not a crown of shame. It's gained in a righteous life. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. Our culture knows that very well, right? I was just talking to my wife about this, that I have a fence behind my house, and it's kind of falling apart, and I see, like, these new boards because they're putting new boards back there. And I went back in memory's lane. I remember when I was younger, I used to climb that fence and just jump over the fence because I didn't feel like walking around it. Well, several decades later, that fence started breaking down because 150-pound body jumping over the fence for years broke it down, right? I would not jump over that fence today if you paid me because I'd probably get injured trying to do the sort. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. I mean, can you believe this in the Bible? It is. It's true. In Leviticus 19.32, it says, You shall stand before the gray head. And honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. We're supposed to honor and to stand in respect and reverence for those who have gray hair and to honor the face of an old man or old woman. And this isn't just a, something that's taught in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and the law, Leviticus, but it's even found in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the same idea that there's supposed to be a respect and a reverence for Old age. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 through 1 and 2, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all of purity. So it's talking about how we're supposed to have different relationships with different people within the flock. And here, Paul is instructing Timothy, essentially an elder, how to have relationships with various different people within the congregation. And he says specifically of older men, they are not to rebuke them, but rather to encourage them and treat them as they would a father. That is with respect. And older women, they are to treat as they would their mother. With respect younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters in all of purity. Now, again, this is exactly opposite of how our culture perceives the elderly the culture perceives the elderly as out of date, out of the way. They're often conceived of as largely confused, pitiful, and weak. Isn't that true? Even when these things are not at all true of those individuals, that is often the way that they treat them. In fact, ageism is a very real thing. There's actually a lady at my office. She was uh, turning 60-ish, and uh, unfortunately, we had to let her go. And when we let her go, we laid off a whole bunch of employers, including this lady. And I really felt bad for this lady because of this reality of ageism. Because it was very difficult, and unfortunately, I need to give her a call, she was not able to find a new job because of this reality of ageism. That people discriminate 
on people just because of the age. Just when they see the age, they think that this person is no longer able to do this or that and so forth and so on. So why is it that we have this very negative view of age when in the biblical, in the Bible, that is not the case? And if you just look historically in past cultures, that is not the case. All you have to do is go to an historical culture, and you'll often find that the, the age were respected within their communities. But today, that isn't the case. And the reason why is there's a whole bunch. But one reason is that the media, which is a cultural producer, culture just doesn't happen to us. There was cultural producers that produce culture is largely controlled by revolutionaries. And these revolutionaries are largely trying to change the culture and to erase Christian values. And they know that children are, by and large, naive, arrogant, and easily manipulated. That's just true. It's much more difficult to convince older people of bad ideas than younger people of bad ideas because younger people just don't know any better. They just get on the scene, and everybody wants to change the world instead of just inheriting the words that they got and trying to make it just a little bit better. So these cultural producers go and present the youth as brilliant, smart, intelligent, and the ones who really have it together. And, of course, the older people are out of date and need to simply get out of the way. But, of course, this is not the way that we should be influenced. We may consume their products, but we don't need to consume their ideas. Our ideas need to be from the Bible. And the way that we should perceive the elderly is the way that the Bible perceives the elderly, namely as we should value them for their wisdom and their experience. Right? If you have any wonder about that, as you get older, you will see that is true of yourself as well. Hopefully, every year that you go by, you will have learned something more, you have gained some more experience, and you become wiser. That's the goal, to continue to increase, to continue to get better. Let me just say this. Two, those things, wisdom, knowledge, experience, you can continue to increase. And there's something, if you value those things, then growing older is a thing that you look forward to. But if all you value is strength and beauty and popularity and all these things, then, of course, growing older is something that is going to cause you great misery and pain. It really just matters of what you value. Do you value that which is fleeting or that which is inherently, truly valuable? We should be becoming wiser, more experienced, and growing in the Lord. This is what the Bible teaches us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all with unveiled face should behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed by that same image from one degree of glory to another. When you think of yourself a decade earlier, you should be primarily seeing yourself as less glorious than you are now. And that will be, if that is true of you, that will be based on how you primarily see yourself. As a piece of flesh or as a, a spirit and made in the image of God that is growing in glory to glory. If you're not growing in glory... If your best days, spiritually, were days gone by, then Jesus has this to say to you, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And sometimes we are not growing. Sometimes we stagnate. Sometimes our best days are days gone by, but let that not be the case with us. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews says that some of you ought to be teachers, but you still need milk. Hopefully we're continuing to grow so that we can become more useful, more helpful, and more mature in the Lord. So as we wrap up this point, let us just make sure that we're not brainwashed by the culture. We do, let's not have preconceived negative ideas when it comes to the elderly. We should have a policy that we assume that the elderly are wise and experienced until proven otherwise. It's kind of like 
In Proverbs 17, 28, it's kind of the opposite. In Proverbs 17, 28, it says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Until he proves that he's unintelligent, we think he's intelligent, right? In the legal system, you are innocent until proven guilty. And so, too, we should view the elderly as intelligent, as smart, as wise, as experienced, as something that has something to contribute to the larger body, unless we see otherwise. And that's something that is so important, especially in this day and age of social media and of isolation. So often it grieves me so much that people always try to segregate into their own generational realities. Middle-aged people with middle-aged people, young people with young people, old people with old people. That's not the way the body is meant to function. We should be coming together as an entire community. We all have something to contribute to one another. We should be rubbing shoulders of people of all different generations so that we can all benefit from one another. Every generation has a blind spot, right? Isn't that true? Aren't there stereotypical blind spots in every generation? And those blind spots are smoothed out by the other generation. That's the way that the body of Christ is meant to be, and that's the way that we should be. All right, so we've seen that the elder here is a a title of endearment for the apostle in his old age. And now we will look to, we'll turn to who this letter is written to. It's written to the elect lady and her children. This most likely does not refer to a literal lady and her literal kids, but rather it is a way of addressing the church. The church is called the elect lady. That is the chosen lady. And her individual, the individual members are those who make up the church. So the elect lady is a title for the, ch- the church collectively, and her children refer to the individual members, that is us, who make up the church. Now there are several things or several reasons why it's most likely referring to this type of typological reality instead of an actual lady and her children. So let's look at those reasons. Number one, John says in verse one that all who know the truth love this lady and her children. So there's a universal love for this lady and her children for all Christians. Well, this would be very odd if this refers to a specific individual family, right? Because we don't even know who this lady is. Even in that day, not everybody would know who this individual lady was. And so it would be strange if the universal church loved this lady. The second reason is in verse 4, John says that some of her children are walking the truth, which implies that some are not. And as you continue to read the letter, the some that are not seem to be heretical teachers denying the deity of or denying the, the person of Christ that he came in the flesh. These are the Antichrist. Now, it seems more likely that what's going on here is that John is addressing the fact that some members of the church have remained faithful, and some members of the church have, remained, have become unfaithful and abandoned the faith and gone to teach uh, heretical teaching. This is probably not just an interfamily drama, right? This is probably not just something that's happening in a local family. Reason number three, in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, John states that, the children of your elect sister greet you. Once again, it's more likely that John is sending greetings from a sister church. We even use that language about sister churches. Then that this is actually talking about an aunt and her nephews and nieces saying hi to one another. The fourth reason is that the New Testament elsewhere uses the language of a woman being referred to as the church collectively. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, we read, she, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So that she, who is at Babylon, is not a woman, but she, who is at Babylon, is referring to the church at Babylon, which is most likely a reference to Rome. So the church at Rome sends you greetings along with this individual, uh, Mark, 
my son, sending you greetings. So it's not unusual for the, the New Testament to refer to the church as a woman. We see this also in Revelation 22, verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So in Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit, obviously, is the Holy Spirit who invites people to the kingdom of God. But then it also says, the bride says, come. The bride here is a reference to the bride of Christ. We know that. In fact, there's a cult, a Mother God cult, that tries to say that this bride is some just random woman um, that, anyways, I want to get into that. It's obvious that the bride here refers to the church of Christ, right? We know that. The bride of Christ is the church of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, we have this idea of a woman referring to the collective people of God, and we see that in Isaiah 54, verse 1. You all probably are familiar with this. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So the barren one here who has these children is the corporate collective people of God that is birthing uh, through Reformation and, and all of that, uh, new people of God. The Old Testament church essentially uh, producing the New Testament church. So most likely this is not referring to an individual woman, but the church collectively. I think maybe you already knew that, maybe not. But that's what it most likely is referring to. One additional note before we leave this term elect lady is let's look into that title lady. Now we can kind of see that in English, but you can see it a little bit more in Greek. Uh, in English, you can just say, like, you know, ladies' bathroom. It just means it's a synonym for female. But sometimes the word lady refers to a title of dignity of a woman. Or sometimes there's the word mistress. This is a weird one, because mistress can be a very negative term, but also can refer to a female lord, is the mistress. And that's kind of what's going on here with this word lady. In Greek, the word for lord is kurios, and the female version of a kurios, a lord, is a curie, which is, or curia, which is this word right here. So if this is a female lord, in other words. The word lady here is referring to a female lord. And so what may be hinted at as this idea is, well, who is the lord? Jesus is the lord, right? The lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is lord, which means king of kings and lord of lords. Well, then who is the lady? Remember, we already said the lady is the church. Remember, this means mistress. This means female lord. So who is the female lord? The church is his lady. Jesus is the lord, and his bride... His lady, his mistress, is the church. And then who are the children of the Lord and his lady? Well, we are, the individual members. And this idea is found also in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written. And then we quote that Isaiah passage. Rejoice, O barren one, one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, are like Isaac, children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. For brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The point is that the New Testament identifies this concept that we have a mother, and that mother is Jerusalem, i.e., the mother is the church. Now, why is this important? Well, it's interesting because a man named Cyprian, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, Cyprian, he's one of the anti-Nicene fathers. He 
was born in A.D. 210. So this guy goes way back into the beginning of the church. Cyprian famously said this, No one can have God for his mother who does not have the church, excuse me, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, I think that's an amazing statement, and it's really kind of perplexing. When I first heard that, I kind of, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, because I was thinking this was kind of a Roman Catholic idea, but this is before Roman, the Roman Catholics were even around. It's really true. No one can have God for his mother who does not have the, God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, the reason I think that this is important is because we have to think about the fifth commandment, which says that we are to honor your father and your mother. We should be people who both honor God as our father and the church as our mother. First Timothy 3.15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and foundation of the truth. That's the way that the Bible refers to the church as the household of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That the church is a very important thing. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the only thing Christ promised that will never, that the gates of hell will never prevail. Christ promised to build his church. He did not promise to build your legacy. He did not promise to build your aspirations, your dreams, any of those kind of things. We're always trying to build our own kingdom, but Christ is trying to build his own kingdom. And oftentimes we're frustrated with God because he's not helping us build our own kingdom. But possibly, just possibly, that we're building the wrong kingdom. And he says, stop building your own kingdom, but rather start building mine. And that kingdom is the church, not the paraministry, this paraministry and that paraministry. And so often we get that confused and we start thinking the paraministry, which is supposed to support the church, is more important than the church. Or our social groups or whatever becomes more important than the church. And then we forget this reality, that the church is what God is building. The church is our mother. It is the church that we are to honor. It is the church that we are to respect and to support. God describes the church as beautiful and as glorious. The question is, do we value and perceive the church as glorious and beautiful? In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, here is the description of the church. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is incredible that the woman is clothed with the sun. I want you to imagine that. A woman, a beautiful woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of on her head with 12 stars. This is a glorious and beautiful picture. Some commentators have said that there are few figures in Revelation that are more glorious than this woman here in Revelation chapter 12. She's one of the most glorious figures in all of the Bible, and it's a woman. It refers to the church. So again, how do we view the church as a whole, corporately, collectively? Do we view her as beautiful and glorious, or are we like Ham, who goes around and tries to expose her and go around and try to, as Ham did with Noah, while he was lying naked in the tent. Are we like Ham, who goes around and always tries to attack and smear the church? Or are we more like Shem and Japheth, that while we acknowledge that the church has some problems and sins, we walk backwards and cover its shame? Which one are you? The church is accuser, or the church is supporter? Exodus 21, verse 15 says, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Who is our father? The Lord. Who is our mother? The church. If you strike either one of them, you deserve death. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are that temple collectively as a church and individually as the temple of God. One of my favorite 
passages of the Old Bible, and I highly recommend you memorize if you haven't, is Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You're blessed if you do not sit in the seat of scoffers. You're blessed if you do not join people as they attack the church. Remember, whoever attacks the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, we're not talking about constructive criticism. There's one thing, and there's a time and place for constructive criticism, but it's another thing if someone's seeking to slander, smear, and destroy the church. Recently, I was listening to a podcast from an individual named Russell Moore. Now, he's a controversial individual, but I figured I would listen to him for myself. And I was listening to him, and it was interesting because podcast after podcast, he was nothing but attacking the church, how bad the evangelicals were. And eventually, I just couldn't listen to this any longer. It was not constructive. It was full of hate and trying to destroy the church. He had joined the world in attacking the people of God. Don't be like that. Be the church's supporter. Devote your time, treasure, and talent to the church's prosperity. And if we're doing that, great, continue. And Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We should be supporting the church, not tearing it down. If we see problems, get in there and fix it. Get in there and help. Be the church's supporter, not her destroyer. If we are not devoting our time, treasure, and talent to the church, but doing other things, we have a word from the Lord in Haggai. Haggai 1.3. It says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the houses, while this house, that's the house of the Lord, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord host, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them into, or puts them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build this house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins, while each one of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withdrew the dew, and the earth has withdrawn its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil on what the ground brings on man and beast and on all their labels. Why? Why did God give them this bag with holes in it? that he called the drought for them because they tried to build their own house instead of trying to build the house of the Lord. Let us not be people who are trying to build our own house, but let us build the house of the Lord with our time, treasures, our prayers, our desires, and our aspirations. All right, quickly, let's turn to the latter part of our verse. We have John the Elder. He's writing this to the elect lady and her children. And he says, this is whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all those who know the truth. So here John tells us that he loves the church, everything I've been talking about. John himself loves the church, and not just the church corporately, but its members too. Because sometimes we can say we love the church, but it's the invisible church. It's a church that we cannot see. It's a church that we don't attend. It's some church up there in the sky, right? We love the church, but we never see it. We never attend it, and we hope, we hope one day we'll get there. Okay, but do you actually love the members of the church? I'm glad that you love the corporate church, the collective church. Good. But do you love its messy individuals? We're supposed to love both. I love both the elect lady and her children. We love each other. 
John has spent his entire adult life seeking the, the church's good. In fact, he's writing this very letter to continue to see the church and its members prosper. Now, why does he do this? Is it because of a sense of duty? I'm sure there is a sense of duty. He is the apostle. He is the one that God has left to lead the church. But I think it's more than that. It's more than that he has some sense of duty. It's more that, than that God will hold him accountable for how he leads the church. It's not just a sense of duty, but a sense of love and delight. And that should be our attitude. We love the church. We dedicate our lives to the church and its members. Not just because we have to. We do. But not just because we have to, but because we want to. Because we love the church. Again, this is not just true of John, but he says he loves the church in truth. That is, he truly loves the church. Not just in word, but in action. But not just I, but all who know the truth. All who know the truth feel the same way about the church. They love the church. They love its members. The people of God love the people of God. Does that make sense? If you are a child of God, you love the children of God. I heard a man say that the center of the universe is love. And that is true. The center of the universe is love because the center of the universe is God. And God is the creator of himself. God is love. And so if we know the center of the universe, which is love, or more importantly, if the center of the universe lives within you, then out of your heart will overflow rivers of living water. And those living water that springs up to eternal life will produce love. You will love the people of God. And that love should find its greatest expression in the people of God. You know, did you know that the Bible itself teaches that Christians should have a special love for the people of God? We see this in Galatians 6, verse 10. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. We love everyone, right? But we have a special love for the people of God. Do you have a special love for the people of God? Well, sometimes I see people who seem to have a special love for the people of the world and hate the people of God. It might be because you're part of the world. All right, let's look at verse 2. 2 John verse 1, verse 2. 2 John 1, verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Well, the because of is telling you why does he love, John love, and why does all those who know the truth love? It's because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth is talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This Jesus who said, I am the truth, also said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And I will be with you, and you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus did not leave his people as orphans, but the way, the truth, and the life has come and indwelt in his people in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is that this truth that abides in us, that causes us to love, not only abides with us now, but will be with us forever. That is, Jesus says that no one will snatch you out of my hand. That all that the Father who sent me, all that the Father has given me, will come to me and I will lose none of them. When John 6, 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. If you come to Jesus, truly come to Jesus, repent of your sins, he gives you the Holy Spirit, he changes your heart, fills it from hate to love and he will hold you fast and that truth will remain in you forever. That is the gospel. Come to Jesus, repent of your sins and God will come to you and indwell you and save you and redeem you and cleanse you and be with you forever. Let's look at our last verse before we close out. Verse 3, John goes on to say, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and in love. What's interesting about this verse is oftentimes, if you go into, you see these kind of greetings, these kind of blessings, grace and peace, John MacArthur has a ministry, grace to you, 
Where does he get that ministry from? From this kind of uh, benediction, this kind of blessing, this kind of greeting. Grace to you. Very common. But here, it doesn't just say grace, but John expands it, grace, mercy, and peace. And notice, it does not say grace, mercy, and peace be to you. Or it doesn't even say grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. That's what it says all throughout the New Testament. But it says something a little bit different here. I didn't catch it the first time, but if you look a little closer, you'll see it. He says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He's talking about what will be in the future tense. And so you put this together, just as truth will be in us, so grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. And then if you look at the very end, in truth and love. So both, all of these things are going to be with us forever. Grace, mercy, peace, truth, and love. All of these attributes will be in the people of God. Grace, mercy, and peace is what God gives us. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not ourselves as the gifts of God. God had mercy on sinners like us, and it has made peace with God. That all comes from the Father and the Son. And this allows us to be people of the truth and people of love. Remember I asked in the beginning of the sermon, what's more important, truth or love? It's kind of a false dichotomy. What will be with us is truth and love because of the grace, mercy, and peace that we have with God. This is a question I'll leave you all with thinking about. It says here, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. But the with us are believers, those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. But if you have not done those things, you have none of these things. You have no grace. You have a little bit of grace, but you don't have the saving grace of this passage. You don't have the mercy of God, and you don't have peace with him. You probably don't have peace with your neighbor, probably full of strife and envy and lust and all kinds of debauchery and sin. But you can have this grace, you can have this peace, you can have this mercy, and it comes from the Father and from the Son. The most popular verse in the whole Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The passage is so crystal clear. It's so easy. Someone, I was just listening to someone who said, the gospel sounds too easy. All you got to do is believe. That's all you got to do. All you got to do. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all you got to do. All you have to do is see your need. All you have to do is see your sin. Recognize the wage of sin is death. Recognize that if you die in your sins, that you will not have peace with God, but that you will have the wrath of God remaining on you. You will go to that place where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. But all you have to do is recognize that and call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And he will cleanse you. He will give you that grace free, bought by the blood of Christ, and you'll be saved. And you can walk in the truth. It's one of the things I love about being a Christian more than anything else is I don't have to deny, deny reality. I can walk in the truth. I can be a person of the truth. I can stare death in the face and say, ha-ha, Christ is one. And we will conquer it through him. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we can look death in the face and realize that Christ has conquered over him. We thank you that we don't have to be terrified of aging, denying that we live in a sin-cursed world, that our joys will be turned to sorrow, that bad days are coming, the evil days shall arise and come upon us. But we know, Lord, that you have conquered that which is evil, and beyond the cross is the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and rescued us from sin. And we pray that if there be anyone here that is living in denial, that is a child of the devil, they would come and first fear you, Lord, and then see you as beautiful and come and repent of their sins and trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name.